All right, thanks for joining us today. We're going to keep going um, in our walk through the book of Luke together. Um, so we're going to finish chapter 5, and we're going to do the beginning of chapter 6 today. So uh, if you have a Bible, go grab it. If you want to follow along in the YouVersion app, that's there on the website. Um, you can go ahead and do that. All right, let me open us up in prayer. Lord God, the point of these sermons is to hear from you and to let your spirit teach us uh, about your heart and for you to make us um, more like you. And so right now, Lord, we just really want you to to help us understand this text and to help us hear uh, your words uh, through scripture today as we, as we dive in. So we just ask that you would do that in a powerful way. Amen. So a while ago, I became a Christian kind of, I grew up in church, but I became an actual believer sometime right towards the end of high school. And I think it was the summer or the, sorry, like the, I feel like this was maybe my senior year, maybe my freshman year of college, somewhere around there. Um, I was going to church, you know, and some guy got up on stage and said, hey, we're doing a men's retreat, you know, and I was like, oh, I guess that's what Christians do, right? They go on men's retreats. So I signed up, you know, with my dad and we went down. Um, to Mission Springs in the Santa Cruz Mountains in Scotts Valley. And, um, you know, the retreat was mostly good. But I remember on one of the nights, um, you know, there's the big auditorium. And I was like the only person there under 30 probably. But almost everybody at this retreat was probably 50, 60 plus. You know, it was kind of a bunch of older guys. I didn't realize that when I signed up. Whatever. It was cool. I got down there. I'm having fun with some of the old dudes from church. And uh, we're in the middle of the one of the worship services. And the band is playing a song, and between one of the songs, um, some guy gets up on the stage, and he looks out at the crowd, and he says uh, something like, um, you know, this guy was clearly not part of the retreat. He was somebody who got up out of the, the congregation, stood up on the stage, and he said, um, if we could all just please be respectful and remove our hats while we're in the house of the Lord or something like that, um, you know, that'd be great, thanks. And everybody in the whole place looks around. Yeah, there's probably a couple hundred people there. And uh, I'm the only one with a hat on in the whole place. And so this guy stood up on stage and he singles me out in front of everybody. And so I'm pretty sure what happened was I just went, my grandparents lived close to there when they were alive. So I think I just went and hung out at my grandparents' house for the rest of the retreat. Um, it's a Christmas miracle I ever went back to anything in church. I mean, I was mortified, right? I didn't, you know... I, this guy calls me out in front of everybody, which, so what happened was this guy was misreading a part of the Bible and then forcing other people to adhere to his misrepresentations, right? So there's this tradition from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and where it talks about praying in church with your head covered and if, you know, um, not having your head covered if you're a guy, uh, having your head covered if you're a woman, you know. So basically, there's this part of Scripture where it talks about this, but the part of Scripture has cultural context to it and context, even literary context. What is he talking about around that part? This wasn't a one-off command. And stop wearing hats in church. That's not what Paul was saying. There's a whole thing that Paul was getting into about using pagan worship practices in Christian worship, you know. Anyway, no context with this guy whatsoever. He just gets up on stage and he humiliates me. And I, I don't know if you can tell, but... I mean, that was 20 years ago almost now, <clears throat> but I still like my hats. I mean, I think every sermon I've probably been wearing a hat. I wore a hat when we were teaching and, uh, or, you know, when I was teaching back at the, um, you know, the 
the Powell Street location, and I, I wear hats. It's what I do. I like hats. Um, it's why I have really short hair, you know, because I just wear a hat every day anyway. Um, when I was a kid, I used to sleep with my hat on, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing ungodly about wearing a hat um, during church. What was ungodly was this guy's reaction to something in Scripture, right? Here's the thing. Scripture is the Word of God. Absolutely. Second Timothy tells us that scripture was, was breathed out by God, like from his very breath, it was inspired by God. But here's the problem is when we take these perfect and these holy words, and then we add things to them and we think, well, I can make God's word a little bit better. I can expand on God's word. Um, the Pharisees in Jesus's time were masters at this. So what they did was they created, uh, they had the law of Moses, and then around the law of Moses, they created uh, like a buffer zone is what we call it. So let me give you an example. Um, let's just say that we had a rule with our church that nobody from our church was ever allowed to go to L.A. for obvious reasons. I mean, that's a pretty fantastic rule, actually. Just kidding. I go to L.A. every year for my motorcycle show. But let's say, can't go to L.A., um, which reminds me, by the way, the Dodgers might win the World Series, and I'm absolutely devastated. So if that happens, nobody call me or write me or talk to me for a few weeks. But anyway, let's just say you, you might go to L.A. Or you're not allowed to go to L.A. Then just to make sure that people don't go to L.A., we actually add a second rule. Well, no going south of Big Sur. Because once you get south of Big Sur, you might lose your way and you might, you know, end up close to L.A. and then you might end up in L.A. So the actual rule is don't go to L.A. The buffer zone is don't go past like Big Sur, I don't know, Modesto, somewhere in there, right? This is what the Pharisees did. There were actual rules that God had set up, not like the L.A. rule, but like actual stuff that God said to his people. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to follow my law. And then these guys came along and they said, well, just to make sure that nobody breaks those rules. We're going to put a bunch of rules around those those other rules. We're going to create uh, this buffer zone. And what they did was they 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 put these huge burdens on people. And so today, what we're going to read is Jesus is going to walk right up to these these extra rules, right? This buffer zone, this way of thinking, um, and he's going to kind of challenge it in three uh, three different sections. So. Um, normally we read smaller bits or, you know, it depends on how we break up the text, but I think that reading all three of these sections together, um, is helpful. So we're going to read all three of them here and then see. So we're going to start in verse, um, 33. So the first section goes from 33 to 39, where he talks about fasting. So verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Okay. So. Here's what's going on. So the Pharisees and fasting. When you read the Old Testament law and you read the first five books of Moses, if you go through there and you look for anything that talks about fasting, all you're going to see is basically one passage. And it says there's only one day a year that's required to fast. And that's on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, which was a big Jewish holiday where sins were forgiven and you know, uh, sacrifices were made. It's kind of a big deal. So on that day, fasting was required. What's actually interesting is the rest of the holidays, the rest of the Jewish festivals were all about eating Passover meal, eating these big lavish meals, right? So the normal thing that God commands people to do is eat and feast. The fasting thing was only supposed to happen once, but the Pharisees and their buffer zone, they changed it from fasting once a year to fasting twice a week. So they went from one fast a year to over a hundred fasts per year. And this took it way too far. Um, 
Jesus would talk about these Pharisees and their fasting later on, um, and I'll read to you from Matthew 6, 16. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, um, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So their fasting was not any sort of an internal worship. Their fasting was, I want everybody else outside to see that I'm holy, to see that I'm in this buffer zone and that I'm nowhere near breaking the law of Moses. And so do you see what happens, though? They complain. uh, They complain, right? Uh, Our guys do this. Even John the Baptist, his guys do it. How come your guys don't? Why are you not participating in my extra biblical stuff? Why are you not participating in my buffer zone? They're treating the buffer zone like it's the actual zone, right? They're treating their extras like they're actually a part of the law of Moses. And look what Jesus says. Look at his response, verse 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus, one of the things as as a preacher that I love about Jesus is, I mean, there's a lot of things, obviously, but one of the things I love is reading this. He's a master illustrator. There's nobody better in history at coming up with kind of illustrations to teach and to make his point. What I do is... um, because I'm not as good as Jesus, I use Evernote and I have this huge file full of notes. And every time I'm around in a movie or something and I see something that might be an interesting sermon illustration later on, I throw it in Evernote and I tag it. And even with my very complicated system uh, and my my huge database, I'm nowhere near as brilliant as Jesus was. Um, uh, he's What he does is he always just uses really plain and simple things Uh, from around him that made so much sense to the people who were listening. And so what he does here is he's going to tell, to talk about fasting, he's going to tell three different illustrations. So first, he talks about the wedding feast. So um, remember that the, the, the world back then was a pretty gloomy place. And anytime you could have a big meal that you could, we talked about this uh, before when we were talking about uh, last time with Matthew and throwing his banquet. Anytime you could have sort of a big meal and a banquet, it was a special occasion. Weddings were a huge deal in this culture. And he says that, um, he says here that the wedding guests are literally, uh, he says the sons of the bride, uh, sons of the, the, the bridegroom, uh, which was a slang term for what we would call like groomsmen, right? They were like groomsmen kind of guys. He says these dudes, uh, you know, the part of the bridal party, they can't fast as long as the groom within, is with them because the groom is there, they're at the wedding. And if they're at the wedding, it's time to party. Um, now, what's he talking about? Well, you have to understand... Um, what happened at first century Jewish weddings. They weren't like our weddings. These weddings lasted for, I mean, depends on the area and the time frame and stuff, but you know, they lasted for days. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, life was hard for these people. And these weddings were huge occasions and um, they would go for a week. And uh, this though, even though the world kind of stunk, weddings were a time to party. Weddings were time to have fun. And as a matter of fact, there was actually one rabbi who had this rabbinic kind of ruling, uh, he said this, that all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved from all religious observances, which may lessen uh, their joy. And so Jesus is probably picking up on that. Jesus is using this parable to answer their question about fasting. He's saying, look, I've come to earth now, right? The incarnation is here. The incarnation of God is here. And that means it's time to celebrate. And while you're here, while I'm here is what he's saying, you can't be all gloomy and fake fasting to make your yourself look all like gross and hungry and everything. He's like, while I'm here, guys, it's time to party. Um, And it's time to set those petty religious things that don't really matter aside because God is here. And 
But there's also something, there's a deeper meaning to what Jesus was saying, because a wedding is a time when a, uh, the wedding ceremony is a time when a new covenant is instituted, right? And so in a similar fashion to his, um, to, uh, sorry, to the incarnation, right? When he came in the incarnation, he instituted a new covenant with humanity. So the deal that he had made with, with Moses was now being replaced and fulfilled in the new covenant. And it's the covenant that God promised through his prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. And so all of these Pharisees who were biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars, they should have known to look for this new covenant. This is what he says in Jeremiah 31. Uh, 31 through 33. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's some exciting stuff, right? All of this this new covenant, right, was instituted when Jesus came. This was the stuff that Jesus came to do. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying is this is like a wedding celebration. This should be a time of partying. This should be like a wedding feast, not to be all gloomy and depressed. And so he says, my disciples don't fast because we're in the middle of the party. But eventually, and Jesus hints at here, is... Um, uh, uh, the wedding would be over and the marriage would begin. And so Jesus kind of hints here at his death and his resurrection. And once that happened, the wedding's over. But as long as he's here, it's time to party. It's a period where the, the new covenant is being instituted. And so that's the first illustration. Jesus continues now. So first he says, the reason we don't fast is because we're partying, because I'm here. And then he gives a couple of more illustrations. So look at verse uh, 36. He says, he uh, also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from uh, the new will not match the old. So again, he's the master illustrator. Now, if he was telling this illustration today, I think he would say something like, look, you know, what was it? iOS 14. Sorry, Stephen. iOS 14 just came out. And I think what he would say is, look, you can't take iOS 14 and then put it on an iPhone 3G. They're just not compatible. This one's new and this one's old. That's basically what he's saying here. He says, look, first, nobody takes a brand new piece of cloth to patch up a hole uh, in your first century man dress thing that you would wear. Because what happens then is you would wash it and the fabric of the new piece that you sewed into the old stuff would shrink, and as it shrunk, it would pull the rest of it, and it would tear the other fabric. And so he says, look, you have to, the, the old and the new, um, that they don't go together. And he makes that illustration again in verse 37, verses 37 and 38. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. So next he's talking about wine um, as uh, you know, his next illustration. Now, when you think of wineskins, most of you, I have some pictures here I'll show you. Most of you probably think of something like this. You have this in your mind. But what wineskins were back in the day, they were literally just sewn up animal hides. And they looked more like this here. And so when you put wine into a wineskin, what happens is the wine ferments. I know because I'm such an expert on alcohol, just ask anybody. But anyway, the wine ferments and releases gases and whatnot. And while this process happens, and once it happens a few different times, the skin kind of hardens 
um, and ends up kind of like the one in the picture here and it becomes rigid. And once that happens, it's useless because if you put more wine into it, if you put new wine into the old wineskin that's already hardened, uh, once the gas and the fermentation and all that sort of stuff begins, the, the old wineskin would crack and explode. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can't take this old, this new wine and put it into these old wineskins. That doesn't match. And then verse 39, he says this, um, and no one after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Now, third, Jesus is talking about wine again. He's talking about new versus old wine. This one's a little bit harder to interpret, but I think what's happening here, uh, let me explain what I think is happening here. Um, at first, um, well, like I said, it, uh, it's hard to see what Jesus is saying. So uh, take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. But in our culture, um, and I think in this culture, too, people think of the old wine as better than the new wine. And it was the same in their culture. Um, but for, let's say for our, our day and age, I bet like the iOS illustration, he would use a different illustration, right? Um, let me tell you about Ron Swanson. You guys know Ron Swanson. Here's his picture. I'll find a picture while I'm editing this. Uh, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. He's this character. He's kind of this grumpy old dude. He hates... Uh, he's the head of the Parks and Rec Department, but he hates technology, and he refuses to try anything new. He just thinks the old stuff is better, and that's how he's always thought of it. This is how people thought of the wine back then. Oh, the, only the old wine is good. The new wine is not as good. But then they get him to try uh, an iPod in the show. This is back when iPods were still a thing. They get him to try an iPod, and he loved it. And uh, there's a part where he has his headphones, and he's listening, and they're like, why, is, why does Ron have headphones on? And he takes one headphone off, and he says, um, you know, Tom, one of the characters, Tom just put all of my records into this rectangle, and the songs just play one after another. This, this is an excellent rectangle. That's what he says, and I love that part. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. Everybody thinks the old is better. And they refuse to try the new. And then when they actually do, they like it better. And that's what he's saying. You think that your ways are better. You think just because this is how we've been doing it, that this is better. And so I don't, I don't want to try anything new. And um, he's saying that's a really terrible way to do this because the new is here and the new is the new covenant. And what he's saying is that this new covenant isn't compatible. But here's the million dollar question. Compatible with what? The new covenant isn't compatible with the old covenant, the law of Moses, is that what Jesus is saying? No, because elsewhere Jesus would say, you know, not one little tiny bit of the law of Moses will be dissolved or, you know, will go away. He says, I'll keep every jot and tittle or whatever. Because what happens is, um, and the author of Hebrews, um, and Fanny can explain this to all of us, right, in a few weeks, the author of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament law was a shadow pointing to the New Testament law, right, or to the new, sorry, to the new covenant. And so the new covenant instituted, uh, what it did was it, it made perfect what the Old Testament law was lacking, what the law of Moses was lacking. And so it replaced the Old Testament law, but it did it by building upon it. Jesus fulfilled the law. So it, we, we don't want to say the two aren't compatible because that's a really bad way to put it. So what then is Jesus saying? The new covenant isn't compatible with what? Well, remember how this all started with a question about fasting, but not the scriptural mandate to fasting, but fasting according to the Pharisaical tradition. Um, and so the, our sort of exegetical conclusion here then is that Jesus is saying the new covenant is not compatible with your extra system of rules and tradition, right? The grace that Jesus is offering is not compatible with that buffer zone. They don't fit together. The covenant grace doesn't work with this Pelagian system of earning your salvation, right? Jesus and mandated tradition don't go well together. Uh, but 
you know, we'll see that more in this next section, I guess. Um, this time, though, it's not fasting. This time it moves uh, to the Sabbath. And uh, the confrontation now, these next two sections, is about the Sabbath law. So let's keep going. Verse 1, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain. Uh, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So here's the scene. The disciples are going through the grain fields and as they're going through, they're walking through somebody's farm. They're plucking heads of grain as they walked and they're rubbing them in their hands and they're eating them. They're having a snack. I'm going to be honest. I'm not 100% sure what grain looks like if I walked past it in a field, but these disciples seemed to know what they were doing. Now, what they were doing was actually lawful. In Deuteronomy 23:25, uh, there was this law that said if you were poor, you could be cared for. You could walk through another person's field and you could eat as you went, but you couldn't take any grain with you. And that's what it was sort of like. Remember, they didn't have social security. They didn't have unemployment checks, right? This was how they took care of each other was you could walk through somebody's field and eat the grain. And then they would also leave the edges of the field uh, for people to pick and eat. Um, and so they were doing what was actually a according to the law of Moses. They were following the law. The problem is in obeying the law of Moses, they were violating the law of the Pharisees. They were violating the buffers on the Pharisees tradition right? Because the Moses law, the Mosaic law, is not specific about what constitutes keeping the Sabbath. It basically says, don't work and don't let any of your servants or people who work for you, don't let them work either. That's what it says. And the Pharisees weren't satisfied with what the Torah said, so they added onto it. And just to be sure, they added dozens and dozens of extra rules. Here are some of them, right? You can't start a fire. You can't put out a fire. You can't walk a certain amount of steps, depending on which rabbi. You can't write... Uh, two letters of the alphabet. You can't erase two letters of the alphabet. You can't untie anything. No grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, spinning, weaving, tearing, trapping, uh, building, sewing, plowing. You know, none of this stuff was allowed on the Sabbath. And this is what they were accused of doing here was uh, the last one is there's no harvesting on the Sabbath, right? And so this list goes on and on. And they say, you guys are breaking our extra rules that aren't in Exodus chapter 20 uh, or Deuteronomy 5, where you read the Ten Commandments. It doesn't flush this out. And so they've added this to this interpretation to the Sabbath rules. And so Jesus answers them in verse 3. He says, and Jesus, and Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful uh, for any but the priests to eat? And he gave it also to those, um, to those with him. Now, I love how he begins this. Haven't you ever read? This is so perfect. Knowing that the disciples were being accused of breaking the law of Moses right, of breaking this, or sorry, of breaking the laws of tradition and not the law of Moses, Jesus answers them with actual scripture. And he does so by asking a bunch of people who have committed their lives to the Old Testament. These were real scholars, every one of these Pharisees. He says to them, have you ever actually read the scriptures? And in the Greek, uh, it kind of implies a negative response, right? Like too bad, you don't actually know the Bible, the kind of the way it's phrased. And so he's talking here about a story uh, from uh, the life of King David, 
from 1 Samuel 21. And here's what happened. David, it was during the period when Saul was jealous of David and Saul was chasing David all around the desert. And uh, David was, so he was on the run from Saul and he came to the high priest and David lied. And he said, look, I'm on a mission from Saul and I've run out of regular bread. And so the priest gave him the bread of presence, some of the the consecrated ceremonial bread that they had at the tabernacle that only the priests were allowed to eat. And even though David had lied, the principle that Jesus is saying was solid, right? Is David's personal need in that situation to not starve to death outweighed the Old Testament. Um, it was just the ceremonial law. He says the person is more important than the ceremony. And so <clears throat> Jesus is saying that same principle applies here. The disciples are hungry, so they followed the Old Testament law and they plucked heads of grain and they ate them. And their hunger outweighs any sort of tradition or extra biblical revelation or sorry, regulation. And then he sums it all up here uh, in verse 5. Uh, this is brilliant. I love what he says. He, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So in Mark, there's an extra part. When you read the same story uh, in the book of Mark, there's this one little extra bit in Mark 2.27. It says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he goes into the, and the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So remember the son of man stuff from Daniel. When we talk about, when Jesus uses that phrase to describe himself, he's not saying son of man, like, oh, I'm a human. He's saying what it means is I'm God. In Daniel 7, there's this vision of the one like the son of man, right? And there's lightning and thunder, and he, he sits on the eternal throne and all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one, I'm the son of man. I'm the creator of the world. I am the one who created the Sabbath. And so if anybody should know what the Sabbath is all about, it's me. The whole thing was my idea. And I didn't create the Sabbath and then say, wow, now I need people to keep this rule. He said, I created people, right? And then I thought, and then I thought, wow, they need me to help them out or they're going to work themselves to death. And so he gave them the Sabbath as a gift, as a time off to recharge and to worship and to spend time with the Father. But somehow these Pharisees now have turned it into a burden. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm the creator, and I'm here to tell you that you have completely missed the mark. I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, one time I was in, when I was in seminary um, out in Berkeley, uh, I was at class early, and there was this older guy uh, who was in seminary with us. I mean, this dude was probably late 60s, I don't know. And um, man, this guy was great, by the way. He was one of those African-American guys that always dresses like to a T, always with the suit and the matching shoes and the hat. You know, this guy was amazing. He was a good friend of mine. Well, anyway, one day we were sitting there early and we're studying for a test, or I don't remember what we were doing. We were all working on papers and there were three of us sitting at this table and something in the news was about judges. Uh, federal judges, which is actually kind of what's going on now, right? We're talking about Supreme Court justices and all this is in the news. It was something like this. So we're talking about judges and we're sitting there and we're arguing. And what he said was federal judges should not be lifetime appointees, right? You should serve a term and then you should be done. And I said, no, I think federal judges should be a lifetime appointee because that removes them a little bit from the politics of it all. They don't have to worry about getting reelected and all this stuff. They just have to do what they think is right as they're deciding these cases. Anyway, we went back and forth. Not that it got heated, but we were arguing about this. And then um, there was a third lady uh, sitting there, uh, third person sitting there, this, this, uh, you know, this woman. And I didn't know her real well. She was only in one or two of my classes. And so the guy says to her, well, what, I don't even remember her name, but he says, what do you think? And she goes, well, I think John is right, that they should, not, they should be lifetime appointees and um, not, 
not, uh, you know, terms and that sort of stuff. And I remember the dude got all mad and he was just kind of like, well, what do you know about it? And then she kind of, I remember, puts her glasses down and looks up and she says, well, I'm a federal judge. <laughs> so this lady was going to seminary and she was a judge. She had been appointed by Clinton in the early mid 90s. And we didn't know she was a federal judge. And here the two of us are stupid idiots arguing about federal judges. Probably sounded like a bunch of morons. You know, she was probably sitting there giggling, listening to how stupid we sounded. And then when it came down to it, she just put her glasses down and was like, I'm the one who actually knows what I'm talking about. I am a federal judge. That's exactly what Jesus did here. Except it would have been even better if she was like, I wrote the Constitution, you know, kind of a thing. Um, because that's what Jesus says here. I created the Sabbath, guys. I know what the Sabbath is about. And so they don't like that answer. So Luke, then tells this other story um, in uh, verses 6 through 11. So let's read this. This is the last. So we have three stories. We have the the, uh, the, the fasting and the wineskins and all the wedding feast. Then we have uh, the, the picking the grain. And now we have the man with the withered hand. So we'll read verses. Uh, we'll start here, read verses 6 and 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Okay, so these stories, first off, are probably not in chronological order. It opens up on another Sabbath. So what's happening here is Luke does the same kind of thing that Mark does. Mark was probably written first, and Luke probably used the Gospel of Mark as a source for some of his material. But what he does here is he's organizing things by theme. So Luke is mostly in chronological order, but not exactly. And so he says he's doing this because these three stories fit together. So at some time around that same time, there was this other Sabbath incident. And Luke's basically like, let me tell you about this because it matches with the other two that we've been talking about. And um, so anyway, at some point, they're all at the synagogue. Um, and you can think of the synagogue, if you haven't seen the other videos where we've talked about this, as sort of like a Jewish church service. And Jesus and his disciples, as uh, they did often, right, they were there. And... Um, you know, and Paul actually was constantly using the synagogue as a platform to preach the gospel. And so Jesus was the guest preacher uh, and he was there and uh, he's this famous rabbi. Everybody's excited that he's there. And so there's this, um, there's this man here at the synagogue on the Sabbath with a withered hand. Now this description, there's a, that's a, a vivid description of the man's affliction, right? The word withered actually means like dried up. So think of like a normal hand as a grape and then think of this guy's hand as a raisin. That's kind of what it like kind of shriveled and withered up and all like messed up. And as we'll see uh, in a minute, this withered, you know, or as we'll see uh, later on, you know, or in the Gospel of Mark 2, he talks about this. The, lither, the withered hand was probably from a result of some kind of injury. He probably was not born like this. And in the first century Jewish culture, as we've talked about, if you were born with an affliction like this, they believed that you were being punished because your parents had sinned. But if something like this happened to you during your lifetime, they believed that God was punishing you because of some sin in your life. And we talked about before how Jesus is going to shatter uh, any notions of that, right, uh, later on. You know, who sinned, this man or uh, his parents? And Jesus is like, nobody sinned. It, this all happened, you know, with the, the other guy. This all happened so the glory of God would be revealed or whatever, however that goes. So at the get-go, the Pharisees already had a deep prejudice against this man, probably. And he's here, though. He's in the synagogue. They sit him right in the middle. Um, and as this story is playing out, it's very obvious that this guy is here on purpose. And so Jesus enters the synagogue, and he starts to teach or whatever. And everybody, the Pharisees, they're all watching Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to see if he was going to heal this guy. They wanted to see if he was going to heal the injured man 
on the Sabbath. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they've decided that healing on the Sabbath was against the buffer zone. It was against their extra regulations, right? And so like, um, I was reading about some of this. For instance, if a man, this is what the Pharisees taught, if a man was trapped under something, you could free him, but you couldn't then help him with his injury. So if a guy is walking down a street and, uh, you know, I don't know, a piece of a wall falls over on him, you could drag him out from underneath the wall, but you couldn't then bandage up his wounds because that was considered work. And so they wanted to be able to see then now if Jesus is going to do this, is he going to break their extra biblical rules? Think of the irony here for just a second. Think of the audacity of these Pharisees. None of them seem to have doubted whether or not Jesus could heal him. Think about that. It doesn't say they wondered if they would heal. If they, uh, sorry, they didn't wonder if he could heal him. They all knew he could. They just wondered if he would. And so, I mean, that is absolutely insane. Uh, they, they knew that he could do this. And so really, think about this just for a second. This prophet, they don't know he's God in the flesh. They don't know he's the Messiah, but they at least know he is a prophet sent from God and he can heal people. And so, uh, you know, set aside the fact, all the stuff that we know about Jesus for a second, you know, like I said, they probably didn't know that. But just from what they knew, uh, they knew at the very least he was working for God. And if he's working for God, and if he is sent by God as evident in his power and his healing and his teaching, shouldn't he be able to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath? Wouldn't his healing powers make it so that he outranks you in interpreting the law? That's what they should have been thinking. Why is he healing people on the Sabbath? And I think that's wrong, but he's clearly a man from God. So what am I doing wrong? That's not how the Pharisees see it. Luke tells us that they set this whole thing up because they want to accuse Jesus. Uh, The Greek word there is a technical term that means like to bring charges against him formally in front of a tribunal or in front of a court, right? They didn't want to just spread rumors about Jesus. They wanted to have him arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus, being God and all, he knew what they were up to. He knew about this trap. And so how does he respond? Look at verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. We talked about that before, how terrifying that thought is, right? That Jesus knows all of our thoughts. He knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. So Jesus asks the man to get up in the middle. The Greek says, right, that's literally what it says, get up in the middle. And most first century synagogues had sort of a half circle of benches. And the teacher would sit in the middle with everybody kind of surrounding him. Um, and so Jesus is teaching. And when this happens, he knows what's going on. He's the guest teacher. And so he asks this guy, basically, in our culture, it would be, hey, come up on the stage at church and stand in front of the entire congregation. And then verse 9, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save a life or to destroy it? So Jesus is asking them this question. Now, the Greek here is a little tricky and can mean a few different things from what I read. I'm not a Greek scholar, but um, different translations translate this a little differently. There are theories about exactly what Jesus is talking about. Um, John Calvin, the the reformer, in his commentary on the gospel kind of gives us a couple of the meanings. First, he says Jesus could be saying that not helping somebody uh, on the Sabbath is the same thing as killing them. So if you if the, the wall falls on the guy and you pull him out and then you let him die, you might as well have just killed him. Um, this is this interpretation is kind of like the end of Seinfeld where um, they watch this this guy get robbed. The four of them watch the guy get robbed and they just stand there making jokes and they don't uh, the four of them don't do anything about it and then they get charged with the Good Samaritan law where you have to help people. And so that's kind of, and then they end up, the whole, the show is that the four of them, the end of the show is the four of them 
spoilers, right? But I think it ended in 1999. The four of them go to jail uh, because they refused to help this guy. And so anyway, that's, that's the first kind of interpretation. This is what Jesus could be saying is that not helping is as bad as hurting. Uh, Calvin also gives us a second option though, where he says uh, that the will of God is better served by restoring life, right? As in Jesus wished you know, like uh, what he wanted to do with this injured man and not by destroying it as the Pharisees wanted uh, to do uh, with this guy's life. So in essence, Jesus is saying, uh, what he's saying is that if I heal this man, even if it's on the Sabbath and even if that's against the rules, which it's not, it's still better than you um, plotting to sinfully destroy me, right? Jesus is trying to save this guy's life. They're trying to take life away and they're trying to use this injured man to hurt Jesus. And so in either case, whichever interpretation, right? The gist of it is clear that Jesus is saying it's not sinful to heal this guy on the Sabbath and your attitude is sinful. Verse 10. And so, you know, you can guess what happens, right? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. So Jesus, he looks around the room. I think in Mark, this is a little more clear, right? Like he, he, he stops and he says, so should we be saving life or destroying it on the Sabbath? This is his question. He's asked this question to the congregation. Um, and Mark actually tells us too that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And so what he does is he probably looks at each person as he's going around the room. What about you? Do you have an answer to the question? Is it better to heal on the Sabbath or to hurt people on the Sabbath? Right? And so he looks around and he's grieved at their hardness of heart. He's so bummed that these religious leaders have missed the mark so bad. They don't understand love. They don't love this man. They love their buffer zone and they want to use this man to accuse Jesus of not entering into their extra biblical rules. And so Jesus, almost just to make a point, although we know he loved this guy and had compassion on him too, but just to make this point, he heals him right in front of everybody. And the guy, you know, stretch out your hand. And he did. He stretched out his hand from a raisin back to a grape, uh, and his hand was restored. Uh, Jerome, who was a fourth century church father who translated the Latin uh, Vulgate, the the Bible the Catholic Church uh, loves to use, um, he tells of one tradition an oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation where he says that this guy's job was actually to plaster walls and to work on buildings, a job where you obviously need both hands. And so uh, this uh, injury was an on-the-job deal. He was plastering a wall, doing something, and he hurt himself. And because of that, he w- wasn't able to work and entered into poverty. And so that may be true, that may not be true, but there's a good chance it is because that's a really weird detail uh, to make up, right? And so whatever it is, whatever this guy's job was, plastering walls, something, Jesus heals this guy. And um, uh, we also know, uh, it says in the text that, um, wait, where is that? Verse six, on the Sabbath, he entered, he's teaching, there's a man, oh yeah, whose right hand was withered. This is important too. So not only does Jesus heal this guy so he can use his hand and work or whatever it is, but this is the first century, the first century, um, uh, first century Near Eastern world. And in the first century Near Eastern world, uh, I mean, this gets a little bit gross, but toilet paper had not been invented yet. And so what you did was you did your business and you cleaned yourself with your left hand. And so everybody in this culture would have known this. You don't touch anything with your left hand. So like, you know, every now and again, 
you go to shake somebody's hand and they weirdly put out the other hand and you're like, what's wrong with you? Okay, so it's kind of like that times a million because of what everybody used their left hands for. You kept your left hand behind you and you used your right hand for everything because, uh, because of that. And everybody in this culture would have known it. And that's why Luke includes that detail. So now this guy, all of a sudden his prospects, not only for work, but just in the culture have greatly improved because he has his right hand back. Uh, it has been restored. Now, that seems like a pretty cool thing. Let me tell you, if I was in a church service and Jesus was teaching and some guy walked in with a withered hand and Jesus said, stretch out your hand and it went from a raisin to a grape, right? If it went and was fully restored and everything, I would lose it. This would be the highlight of my life. I wouldn't, I, I, you know, I wouldn't even know what to do. But that is not the attitude that these Pharisees had. Verse 11, look at what happens. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark tells us another detail, too, where he says, The Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is how mad they were. The Herodians were the people who supported the, Her the, the kings of the family of Herod, right? Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, all these guys. Um, the Pharisees were the ones who wanted to be separate completely from Rome. These two groups hated each other. Imagine what it would take for Nancy Pelosi to meet with Donald Trump to plan somebody else's downfall. Right, those two getting together in a room to cooperate, or you know, this week was the debate. Imagine Joe Biden and Donald Trump coming together to work on something. They would really have to hate somebody uh, to get together. And in the in the Gospels, we read Jesus talks about something. We'll see this later on, where he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right, and what that is is where you're 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 so twisted in your unbelief that you see the work of God and you say that's the work of the devil. And this is what people do with Jesus. They accuse Jesus of casting out demons, the work of God, but in the power of demons. And Jesus says, right, this is the unforgivable sin is being that twisted that you don't want to even be forgiven. You hate the things of God and uh, so much that you hate God himself. And that's basically what these Pharisees are doing here. They're looking at the work of Jesus, and it says they're filled with fury. And so that's our text. We have these three stories. We have the fasting, we have the Sabbath eating in the grain fields, and then we have the Sabbath healing. There are so what I want to do is talk for a minute about these Pharisees and their buffer zone and kind of link it to our culture. There are two primary ways which people abuse scripture, where the scripture says one thing and then we add our own buffer zones, kind of. There's two ways. In Jesus' day, they had the same problem. In his time, there were two groups. They were called the Pharisees, who were kind of on the right, and the Sadducees on the left. The Pharisees were those who created these buffer zones and they added to scripture. The Sadducees did the opposite. They were the ones who took away from scripture and did not take it very seriously. And so today we would call the Pharisees legalists and the Sadducees kind of liberals, but not politically. I'm talking theological, you know, not a political sense, a theological sense. Now, I went to Patton University, which was a Pentecostal college that really... Um, tended towards legalism. Uh, women weren't allowed to wear pants at the school that I went to until like 2005, a couple, or you know, somewhere right after I started, they had a big rule. Women can wear pants now. Um, it was like a hyper Pentecostal, very conservative school. Then after that, I went to American Baptist Seminary of the West, which is a school full of very liberal theologians. And so I know both of these groups very well, because at different times I was, you know, trained by them. And uh, here is how they differ. Liberal Christians, right, these liberal groups, uh, tend to explain why the Bible doesn't always mean what it says. Uh, 
Legalists always explain why it means more than what it says. They add on. But at their core, at the core of what these two groups are, uh, you know, even though they appear at opposite ends of a theological spectrum, they are essentially the same thing, right? They're being selfish. They're using scripture to fulfill their own agendas. They come at scripture with a heart of pride, right? First, the Sadducees, the liberal Christians. If I preached this message and you heard, well, yeah, see, I don't have to do all this stuff and honor the Sabbath. And, you know, see, what John is saying here is we don't have to follow these rules, Uh, if we don't really want to, then you're probably in danger of being like one of these first century Sadducees. The Bible is God's word. Absolutely. Jesus believed it. He wasn't against fasting uh, when it was commanded by scripture. What he was against, uh, or he wasn't against the Sabbath, right? Because he created the Sabbath as a gift for his people. Um, When Jesus faced off against the devil, we read that a couple of months ago, he used scripture as his weapon from temptation. He, he deeply respected scripture. He loved scripture. Remember we saw Jesus the boy debating scripture and talking to the teachers of the law about it when he was in um, Jerusalem? And so we can see Jesus wasn't advocating breaking the decrees of scripture. He was for getting rid of all the tradition that was like layered upon it. Like I watch these shows about sailing and in one of the shows the guy had to to dive onto the bottom of the boat. It had been sitting there for the whole COVID time so far. And so they went back to their boat after months of being gone and had to get a wetsuit on and dive in and scrape all the barnacles off to let the barnacles float away, you know, because that that slows your boat down when that stuff is hanging onto your your boat. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. I want to get in there and I want to scrape off all this extra garbage that's not the actual boat so that the boat can uh, sail smoothly. But in resisting this sort of, uh, you know, like legalism, some people have kind of swung the pendulum too far. And so you should always be very careful of explaining why the Bible doesn't mean what it, what it seems to mean. Why the Bible, why you don't have to do what the Bible says. God wants you to live a holy life. And he's told you how to do it right in this book. He has given us the story of the gospel that shows us his heart. And so we need to take this book very seriously. The selfishness of the Sadducees comes in rejecting the word of God, even if it's only a partial rejection. I'll like some of these parts, but I don't like other ones of these parts. And so they pick and they choose which parts of the Bible uh, that they want to follow, right? I don't have to run my family like God tells me to. I, I don't have to stop whatever this is in my lifestyle. I don't have to alter my behavior. God doesn't really mean he wants me to stop drinking heavily, right? He can't possibly mean uh, he wants me to give money to church and to give up time on Sundays to to um, you know worship and fellowship. He doesn't really mean he wants me to love my neighbor, right? It's this vicious spiral that happens because we're selfish and Jesus isn't really the Lord you know, in, in that instance, not really the Lord of your life. That's why. But then there, on the other side, there's the legalists, right? There's the Pharisees. Same problem, different solution. Pharisees are just as selfish as the Sadducees, but instead of rejecting the scriptures, they add on to it so that they can have a sense of self-worth. They want to they wanna feel um, that they have earned God's love and that they have earned their redemption, earned their salvation. They've earned enough brownie points to get themselves in. And so in Jesus's time, it was rules about Sabbath and fasting. In our day, legalists and church have added other, all kinds of other stuff uh, to the Bible, right? I'll give you some examples. I've already talked about clothing in the church and my hat and that guy calling me out in front of everybody. Um, you know, here's some more examples, right? Here's another example. I found online a while ago um, a contract from a Baptist church dated 
like a membership contract dated from 1982, so a couple years before I was born. Um, and this is what I think, or no, this is what they made, not membership. It's what they made the volunteers and all the leaders sign. So if you wanted to volunteer to be an usher at this church, or you wanted to play in the worship team, I doubt they had a worship team, but you know what I mean. If you wanted to be the organist or whatever, this is what you had to sign. And it's so unbiblical and pharisaical. It says that you should abstain from all worldly practices and habits not in keeping with the word of God and or the standards of this church. So you have to follow the word of God and our standards. The following uh, should be avoided. The use of any form of an alcoholic beverage. Sorry, John Grog, you're out. Uh, the use of tobacco in any form. I know some of you guys smoke. Tattoos or piercings. Uh-oh, I can't be the pastor of this church. I have a Bible verse on my arm. Uh, Melissa can't be uh, anything in this church. She has a nose piercing. Hollywood movies. That's pretty much all of us. Dancing. That's my kids. They love to dance. Playing cards. I hate to break it to you, but I'm really good at poker. Mixed swimming. Uh-oh. Here we go. That's all of us, too. Probably been in a pool with the opposite gender. Dresses of immodest length. So dresses are to be at least to the top of the knee. I'm going to be honest. One time I wore a dress to school for Celebrity Day when I was in high school. I went as Britney Spears and I won the contest and I think I got free Jamba Juice. So I'm out. The wearing of slacks or shorts by women. <sighs> sorry, ladies, if you wear pants. The wearing of long hair by men. Uh, sorry, Chris Warren, you're out for that one. Um, on the ear, over the collar, listening to rock music. Um, this camera that I'm recording this into is actually leaning against my vinyl collection, so I'm out. Reading magazines with immoral, immodest, or suggestive pictures or articles, watching questionable television programs, and or other practices that could hurt the testimony of the church or the cause of Christ. Right? This, this is a kind of legalism that drove Jesus nuts. Right? Not all of this is a problem in our church or even most churches today, but some of this stuff still kind of hangs around. Right? Think about it. You know, like I, we talked earlier about tattoos. Again, this is a misinterpretation of a verse in Leviticus. That verse isn't referring to any tattoos at all. It's talking about this practice of the Canaanite people where they would mark themselves by cutting uh, into their arms to honor the dead and to appease the pagans' God. And so God outlawed that practice, that ritual from the, the Canaanite religions. He says, don't do that when somebody uh, in the Jewish, you know, people dies. We're not pagans. And so... Um, it's not even ink tattoos that they're talking about, right? It's scar. It's sort of those scar tattoos, if you've ever seen that. Um, or how about the you can't drink alcohol, right? Um, my my uh, Grammy, my dad's mom, was like really into this you can't drink alcohol stuff. And we used to talk about it. She was like a, you know, kind of a giant in the faith. And I, But this was like a huge blind spot for her. Um, and what the Bible basically says is, look, you, wine is a picture of joy, but that doesn't mean that you should abuse it. And we've added all this extra biblical stuff about, hey, you guys remember that time Jesus turned water into grape juice and all this? Um, it's it, like exegetically, there's just no way that that makes any kind of sense. And so, you know, the stance that says you can't have tattoo and you can't have tattoos and have a beer, right, is wrong. It's taking tradition to the level of scripture. Now, if you struggle with alcoholism, don't drink, right? That's why at, um, you know, when we do communion, again, if we ever get to do that at the porch, we have juice and we have wine because we don't want people who struggle with this to have to take a sip of wine to participate in church. But that doesn't mean that alcohol is wrong. And Anyway, so that's what these two groups have in common, right? We have the Sadducees and we have the Pharisees. For the Sadducees, uh, you know, uh, and the Pharisees, sorry, they're both selfish. They, they don't have Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And because the Bible really is the word of God, 
this selfishness shows up in how they use it. And so a good way to put this, right, is here's my Bible. This is my preaching Bible. I mean, well, and here's all my other Bibles. That's just one shelf. I have a couple of other shelves. I like the Bible. I read a lot of Bible stuff, so I like having a lot of them. Um, Melissa gives me grief because uh, I spend a lot of money on Bibles. And uh, then I remind her every time one of those things pops up with the pastors, you know, with the hookers and cocaine or whatever. And I'm like, so at least, you know, this is a, this is my habit, I guess, you know, so it's not that bad. Anyway, um, so this is my Bible, right? And so a good way to think about the Bible in your life is that a lot of people kind of put the Bible below them and they say, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to be over the Bible. When the Bible says something, I'll follow it as long as it's something that I already agree with. Um, but the people who really do have Jesus as the Lord of their lives, uh, the people who, who love, who love Christ, what they do is they put the Bible right here. Can you see that in the camera? I can't tell. Uh, anyway, they put the Bible right here. They, their whole lives are underneath the Word of God. The Word of God is the supreme authority in their life. And so as the Bible goes, so they go. They don't need to add to it because what God has already spoken is perfect. And they don't need to take away from it because, again, what God has spoken is perfect. John Calvin, again, the reformer, described what these kind of believers are like. And this is... Um, this is kind of where we'll end. He says, it is God, sorry, let me read that again. It is God who must reign over us and have such a mastery among us that we do not need to add anything to his pure word, nor take anything away from it. And so at the porch, right, we read these, these sermons each week. And we're, we're pretty meaty Bible people, right? We love to, to get into the weeds and we talk about the Greek and we're going through the book of Luke verse by verse. But what I don't want to do is either of these errors. I don't want to go through this book and say, well, this is why you don't have to do this part. And I don't want to go through this book and say, well, here's all this extra stuff. What I want to do is be the kind of people who love the word, not because of what it, you know, not because we love the word, but because we love God who speaks to us through his word, because he has inspired this word. And so, uh, as we talk about neighboring and as we talk about reaching our city and living missional lives, none of that really matters if the lives that we're personally leading aren't saturated in scripture and aren't perfectly, not perfectly, but you know, as much as we can't surrendering to the Lord through his word. And so as you go and reach your neighbors, it should be very obvious to them that you're the kind of person that loves scripture. You're the kind of person who, who loves the Lord and you should, um, you know, you should really live in a way uh, that that is evident to the people around you. So let's not be Pharisees. Let's not be Sadducees. Let's be children of God who are redeemed and adopted into his family, ambassadors for God who love him and are completely obsessed with his word. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, you have not left us in the dark, um, that you really have spoken to us through these words. And as we read the Bible, Lord, you know, our, my Bible software is full of commentaries and dictionaries and lexicons and theological books and sermons and illustrations, all sorts of really cool stuff. But none of that really matters, Lord, if, if when we read, you're not speaking to us. Right? We have study Bibles with notes and all this stuff, but what we really need to do is understand the word so that we can understand you better, so that we can hear your voice in scripture. And so I pray for our time with the sermons together, um, that as we watch these videos, that you would really touch our hearts as a community. I pray for just each person's time. You know, sometimes we share on the Zoom calls just what we're reading. and I love those times, you know, 
And so I, I just pray that as people are reading their various things in Scripture, that you would um, put things on their hearts to share with our community. Because we want to be a people, Lord, who doesn't add to your word, who doesn't take away from your word, but loves it because it's perfect, because you are perfect. So we just thank you for that, for this word, Lord. And we thank you for speaking to us through it. Amen.